you know, it was a confining uh, existence. On the other hand, for the world's most wanted man, it was not a bad life. And he was with his three wives and a dozen kids and grandkids. And um, I don't think that he ever expected that he would be found. Which brings us to the question of how was he found? <clears throat> Which is a long story. <laughs> what starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid, okay? We did it. They're looking for help. We call BS. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. But their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. It begins with... Um, Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti was the alias of the courier who was bin Laden's courier. And <clears throat> it didn't require great acts of inductive logic to realize that bin Laden was relying on a courier network because, and just to give you a few examples, after 9-11, bin Laden released 30 videotapes, at least 30 videotapes and audio tapes, mostly audio tapes. These audio tapes and videotapes would often go to Al Jazeera's bureau in Islamabad or Al Jazeera's headquarters in, in Doha. Uh, not all of them. Um, the ones that went to Islamabad were physically taken there by a particular person and handed to Ahmed Zaidan, who was the Al Jazeera bureau chief. And this happened on two occasions, once in the late 2002 and once just before the presidential election in 2004, US presidential election. So clearly, there were people physically taking these tapes. This was not something you needed to be in the CIA to, to understand. Ahmed Zaidan, who I interviewed for a multiple number of my books and who spent a lot of time with bin Laden, um, you know, he was very public about the fact that you know, he was in a car park and he, was, you know, he received a sort of call and said, you know, come at a certain time late at night on a Sunday and we're gonna, we have something for you, and it turned out to be a bin Laden audio tape or a bin Laden videotape. So bin Laden was communicating by couriers. Now the CIA, um, in 2005, a female analyst 
wrote a memo basically, you know, we, it, the pro, it was called, um, it, 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 it had a title that I'm forgetting for one second. It, it, it had basically outlined, it was called Pillars. And, and basically said, you know, given the fact that we don't have any real information about where Bin Laden is or any really good leads, we need to kind of go back to basics and we need to think about on what pillars are the hunt for Bin Laden going to rest. And the pillars were four. Bin Laden's communication with the media, including Al Jazeera. Can we trace back the chain of custody of these tapes back to Bin Laden? Um, Bin Laden's courier network in general. Bin Laden's communication with his family. And Bin Laden's communications with other leaders within Al-Qaeda. And most of these things didn't really pan out. Uh, They could never trace the chain of custody back from a particular Al Jazeera delivery to Bin Laden. Bin Laden's immediate family was either actually with him, therefore not needing to communicate with him, or they were not, if they were in Saudi Arabia, they were not communicating with him at all. And communications with other leaders of Al-Qaeda never, there was nothing that was intercepted that could ever lead back to Bin Laden. So it really became, in in what General Mike Hayden, the former director of the CIA, uh, calls a bank shot. The bank shot would be, you find the courier and then you find Bin Laden. So it was a matter of trying to assess who was in the courier network. Now, the first time Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti's name uh, seems to have been mentioned, what's available on the public record, is in the, and by the way, WikiLeaks was very useful for this, uh, for the discussion I'm about to give you. Uh, Because WikiLeaks, you know, WikiLeaks, there are hundreds of thousands or millions of documents, some of which are, you know, merely because things are secret doesn't mean they're true. Um, and so much, and much of it is sort of undigested raw intelligence. And, but what is particularly useful uh, for an account uh, like this is in the WikiLeaks sort of dump, there were the, the summaries of the interrogations of people held at Guantanamo. And these summaries summarize, you know, hun- sometimes you know, hundreds of uh, interrogation sessions of one detainee. And of course, not, in the, all, not all the information may be true, but a lot of it is quite interesting and some of it is true. So in the case of um, <clears throat> one particular detainee, um, and you can see this yourself if you go out after this uh, session, if you're interested in looking at it, the detainee that first seems to have mentioned the courier, at least his alias, maybe not his role, uh, was the real 20th hijacker. Now, the real 20th hijacker was not Zacharias Musawi, who was tried in Alexandria, Virginia, and it was in Minneapolis, in Minnesota, sort of taking flight lessons and making kind of a spectacle of himself in the pre-9-11 time period. The real 20th hijacker went to Orlando Airport in the summer of 2001. His name's Mohammed Al-Qahtani. He's an extremely uneducated, a very, very unsophisticated Saudi. In fact, so unsophisticated that he continues to believe, even as an adult, uh, that the the the, um, the the sun revolved around the earth. Um, so he uh, he was not a sophisticated guy. He was basically contracted by Al Qaeda to be the twentieth hijacker, one of the muscle hijackers who would restrain the passengers. He was likely going to be on United Flight ninety three, which crashed in Pennsylvania. If he'd been on the flight, maybe that would have turned out differently. Anyway, an INS officer. Um, when Katani came to immigration, there was something suspicious about his story. Uh, this guy didn't speak English. He, didn't, he had a one-way ticket. He had very little money. His story about what he planned to do in the States didn't add up. 
And so the officer said, sorry, you have to go back to Saudi Arabia. Uh, and this Mohammed al-Qahtani got all enraged and said, I'll be back, and, and, and was sent back to Saudi Arabia. He then went from there to Afghanistan. He was at the Battle of Tara Bora in December of 2001, where bin Laden also was. He crossed the border into Pakistan on December 15th. He and quite a number of bin Laden's bodyguards were picked up by the Pakistanis. They were then handed over to the United States, and they were then sent to Guantanamo. So in Guantanamo, Mohammed al-Qahtani initially said that he was in Afghanistan because of his keen interest in falconry, which was not, of course, true. And uh, he, uh, he, uh, he, he was, and at a certain point, they connected Mohammed al-Qahtani, the fingerprints of Mohammed al-Qahtani to the angry young man in Orlando Airport who was going to be the 20th hijacker who'd been sent back. At that point, he became the subject, obviously, of intense interest from interrogators. And he was subjected to a series of uh, coercive interrogations that Susan Crawford, who was a federal judge appointed by uh, Ronald Reagan, and then was appointed to run the military commissions at Guantanamo by George W. Bush, uh, said that his treatment amounted to torture and he could never be tried for anything. And just to give you a sense of the treatment, he was kept up for, and this, by the way, was this is a rare example of actual coercive, or the only example of coercive interrogation techniques at Guantanamo. Usually they were in, they're in CIA secret prisons rather than the military uh, detention camp at Guantanamo. Miss an episode of Public Access America? Download the SoundCloud app now on your Android or iPhone device to catch up. Anyway, he was kept up for about 44 days straight. I mean, he was given time to sleep occasionally, but he was more or less continuously interrogated. He was subjected to cold, cold and heat. He was, uh, he was uh, stripped naked in front of females. Uh, when he was falling asleep, he was treated to some especially annoying track by Christina Aguilera. And he, uh, anyway, he, he, was, he was definitely abused. Um, and he, uh, he um, and he, by the way, the FBI, which uh, was uh, monitoring some of this, you know, um, an FBI official wrote a, a note to headquarters saying this guy is being pushed over the edge. He's having delusions. He is uh, cowering in the corner. He seems to be having some sort of paranoid schizophrenic breakdown. So the FBI, which was always against these techniques, um, <clears throat> objected and also said that this guy is, uh, you know, being, being abused in a very serious way. At some point, and it's not exactly clear when, the 20th hijacker, Mohammed al-Qahtani, said, the person who trained me on operational security is this guy called Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti, which means the father of Ahmed from Kuwait. Um, and that's the first time that the US government uh, came to realize that um, Kuwaiti played some kind of inner role in al-Qaeda. Um, uh, Dianne Feinstein, who will be leading, you know, who's the head of the committee, has publicly said that coercive interrogation techniques did not provide the leads that led to bin Laden. And as you know, the Senate Intelligence Committee has been doing a three-year investigation of this question. They've written a 6,000-page report, none of which has been declassified, although some of its key findings have been publicly explained by Senator Dianne Feinstein. She says that there is no evidence that coercive interrogations led to bin Laden. And I believe her for two reasons, or three reasons, perhaps. First of all, I think Dianne Feinstein is a very serious individual. It's extremely unlikely that she would say after, and it's been a very thorough investigation. 
Now, certain people in the CIA say, look, we, this, this investigation hasn't been fair because you haven't talked to the officers involved. I actually think that's actually the wrong way around to look at it, because I think documents tend not to lie or, or forget. And if you look, it's, it's really the documentary record that is necessary here. Who said what, when? Uh, and you can get some of that from WikiLeaks, but obviously the stuff that is yet to be declassified uh, can really give you the kind of um, the exact chronology of who said what and when. Because each of these interrogation reports is dated. And you can see in the WikiLeaks uh, interrogation summaries that every interrogation summary is, is dated and, and named in some way. So from what's available on the public record, it's not clear if Kuwaiti said this, if, if, if Kuwaiti's name came before or after these coercive interrogations. But I think it will become clearer, and, and certainly descendant of Dianne Feinstein uh, says, uh, that this kind of information came out previously previous to coercive interrogation techniques being used. Although there's a caveat here because the interrogation I'm describing actually didn't happen in a CIA secret prison, it happened in Guantanamo. Anyway, su suffice to say the issue is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little complex, particularly when so much of what we need to know remains classified. And if there's any, you know, Peter Onis, before we just had this, uh, before I came on the stage, we were talking about Zero Dark Thirty and the extent to which, you know, it's put this issue back into play. And I think Zero Dark Thirty is a you know extremely good piece of film. Um, I'm not sure it's a particularly good piece of history, since it will give most viewers, I think, the impression that coercive interrogations were critical to the finding of Bin Laden. They were certainly part of the history of the war on terror, but that's a separate issue for about that. Then were they really useful in the hunt for Bin Laden? We will know more. We may even know, know some more tomorrow, because I think one of the questions that Senator Dianne Feinstein is going to ask Brennan or, or Senator Ron Wyden uh, or somebody is. What's your opinion about how useful coercive interrogations were? And in particular, did they help in the hunt for bin Laden? Because there's no, probably no official in the US government who was more involved in that hunt than John Brennan himself. Public Access America is on Instagram, sharing sneak peeks, episode art, snippets of the stories, and more. Search Big Brain Pod and follow, like, and comment on Instagram. Um, and I think that will pose an interesting moment for Brennan because he he's in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee and the, the leadership has, has said that, that these, these interrogation techniques were not useful in finding bin Laden. Yet he's going to be taking over an agency where quite a lot of the people in, uh, who work there think that these interrogation techniques were useful and may even be useful in finding, finding bin Laden. So it'll be interesting to see what he has to say about this issue. Returning to the story about the hunt, um, so Al-Kuwaiti, Ahmed from Kuwait, is regarded as somebody important within Al-Qaeda. But, you know, there are millions of people from Kuwait, and lots of them have kids called Ahmed. So Ahmed from Kuwait is not a particularly helpful, you know, it's just, <laughs> it's a beginning, but it's not, it's a very long way from where you really want to be. In 2004, a guy called Hassan Ghul um, was arrested in Iraq, and he's a Pakistani citizen who was carrying a letter uh, between the leaders of al-Qaeda in Iraq and the leaders of al-Qaeda in Waziristan, or in Pakistan. Essentially, he was a letter from Abu Musab al-Zakawi to bin Laden. And the letter basically was saying, we need to start a sort of sectarian civil war in, in Iraq, uh, in order to get the Sunnis to kind of rise up and kind of join us in, against the Shia. Uh, and unfortunately, that project worked out all too well. Uh, but Hassan Ghul uh, was arrested, 
and he was taken into Kurdish custody. And at some point, again, not exactly clear when, um, he said that, and then he was taken to a CIA secret prison where he was coercively interrogated but not waterboarded. He said that Abu Ahmed al-Kuwaiti was one of bin Laden's couriers. For those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. And I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, you and nobody, nobody, gonna hit as hard as fight. Ask not. Yes, we can. What your country can do for you. I have a dream. Ask what you can do for Yes, we can. On SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and now Facebook. Public Access Public America. Access America. History, in the, history in the making. 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 History in history the making. In the making. Public Access America is waiting for you on the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Download the app for free and subscribe to Public Access America to get more episodes like this in your feed every day.